if any of y'all actually know that movie Hero from 1992 with Dustin Hoffman, you'll know that's sort of an ironic scene to start off a message on heroes with since the guy in that moment is actually a fake hero. So he, uh, Dustin Hoffman actually rescues a bunch of people. The whole movie is about Dustin Hoffman rescuing a bunch of people. And then this guy comes in, Andy Garcia, and takes credit for it all and acts as though he was the hero who did it all. And so they have him go there to give encouragement in the hospital. And he says all the right things. The whole thing is he says all the right things, but he's not truly a hero. So, but it gave the line that I wanted to, to leave you with, so I, I left it in there. My other option was VeggieTales, so um, uh, I went with that one. Uh, last couple of weeks we've been talking about the difference between a hero, a villain, uh, and a victim. Uh, somebody who plays the part of a victim just assumes there's nothing that I can change, there's nothing I can do about my life or my situation, there's really nothing I can do, all I can hope is that somebody comes in and does it for me. The villain, however, decides they're going to change even things they can't change. They're going to control the people around them, the circumstances around them, whether they really can or not. They will do whatever it is within their power to gain power over all of those things. The hero, however, uh, is one who accepts the things they cannot change and changes the things that they can. And we'll usually often need a guide for the wisdom to know the difference. That's what we'll be looking at next week. But this morning, we're going to be focusing in on the heroes. And you might say, where do we go in Scripture to find heroes? Well, they're throughout the Bible, but they're all compiled really nicely in one little list, which is where we're going to focus in on this morning over in Hebrews uh, chapter 11. But before we open up Hebrews chapter 11, I kind of want to go back to sort of the ending of chapter 10, which sort of sets up what we're going to be reading about in chapter 11. If you go back to the end of chapter 10, uh, it says this, But my righteous will live by faith, and if he shrinks back, I won't be pleased with him. But we are not those who shrink back and are destroyed, but are those who believe and are saved. Um, I, I don't often go to the message uh, paraphrase, but sometimes it's easier to use the message paraphrase than trying to spend 30 minutes explaining what you just read, because when you read that, you're kind of like, huh? And you ever have that moment where you read the Bible and you're like, huh? And you just kind of read on? Sometimes it helps to read other translations. The message, the message is basically a pastor who paraphrased the whole Bible to make it easier to sort of understand, and most of the time I generally agree with his paraphrases. So I'm going to read it from there and kind of jump off from there. Um, The end of chapter 10, right before you get into chapter 11, it says, Don't throw it all away now. Uh, You were sure of yourselves then. You're still a sure thing. He's talking about your faith, your relationship. You were sure you had a relationship with God then, so you stick with that. He says, you need to stick it out, staying with God's plan so you'll be there for the promised completion. But anyone who is right with me thrives on loyal trust. If he cuts and runs, I won't be very happy. We're not quitters who lose out. Oh no, we stay with it and survive, trusting all the way. So the context for the book of Hebrews is it's being written at a time 20, 30 years after the death of Jesus Christ, after Jesus dies and rises from the dead. And Christians are being persecuted throughout Rome. If you ever have heard any of the stories about Christians being burned at the stake and being put there uh, in the Colosseum before lions and whatnot, it's that sort of environment that's going on when the book of Hebrews is being written. So it is... uh, a very dangerous thing to come out and profess that you're a Christian. And so many of the Christians are either walking away from the faith altogether or they're reverting back to Judaism because Judaism was an accepted faith in the Roman Empire. And so many of them are sort of going back to the sort of safety of Judaism with all of the uh, sacrificial system and trusting in the law. And so all of chapter 10, he's talking about 
don't go back to your old way of life. Don't go back to thinking that the way to be right with God is through doing enough good stuff to outweigh your bad stuff or by allowing the sacrifices to sort of, the sacrificial system, thinking that's going to cover over your sin. If you kind of read through all of chapter 10, you'll see that in there. He says, so don't give up on the fact that the only way that you have a right relationship with God was through faith. Now, every week in here I talk about how this life is about nothing more than having a loving relationship with God that you'll enjoy for all eternity. And a couple of years back, I did a message on sort of understanding the nature of that relationship and how that relationship has, there's sort of three aspects to any long-term, solid, committed relationship. Uh, there's love, there's trust, and then there's a sense of reverence or respect. Uh, in the scripture, the way that that is expressed is love, faith, and fear. So you'll see in the Old Testament a lot of places where it says the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom, uh, they that fear the Lord. Uh, all of that's talking about having God in a proper uh, respect or honorable position, understanding who God is and who I am before God. That's uh, a necessary part of a relationship. Uh, if you think about the marriage relationship, you have all three of these things as well. A marriage relationship is a great example of something that's supposed to mirror our relationship with God. That in a healthy marriage relationship, you have a sense of honor or respect for the other person and for the relationship. After all, don't your marriage vows typically say something like, I promise to love, honor, and to cherish, or love, honor, and respect. Uh, that word honor usually comes up somewhere in the marriage vows because that's a healthy part of the relationship, that you would honor the relationship and you'd honor the person. Uh, another aspect of it is, of course, love. And that one probably doesn't need any explanation. But then the other one is trust. And I often ask people, well, which is more important in a marriage, love or trust? Well, do I have to choose? I mean, it's really hard to have a relationship without either one of those, right? You, you need love and trust. In the same way, our relationship with God, it's, it's made up of a healthy fear, a reverence, or awe, respect of who God is and his personhood. Uh, it's also a matter of a loving relationship with him. But also there is a trust or a faith that we place in God. And faith is not belief. Oftentimes it gets translated as belief because it doesn't sound grammatically correct to say, I have faith in God. It's just easier to say, I believe in God. But belief kind of is not, a, it's not an accurate description of the word. Uh, so when we think of belief, we typically think of somebody who gives an intellectual assent to the reality of, sort of like, well, do you believe in God? Well, sure, I believe there's a God. A lot of people believe in God. Faith, though, is where I take what I believe and I act on it. I'm willing to act based on what it is that I actually believe. And so faith is a, is a belief with action. Uh, there is no faith unless there is an action with it. In the same way, you might even say, without action, there really is no love, right? I mean, if, if, you, if you don't act out, you can, you, it's one thing to say you love somebody. It's another thing to show that you love somebody. Is that a fair statement? You can say you love somebody all day long, but you really know what somebody loves by what they do. In the same way, you really know what somebody truly believes in by what they do. So faith is belief in action in the same way that we might say love is sort of love in action, if that makes sense. Did I explain that well? I don't know. Let's move on. So all of that to say in here is he's saying, listen, you understand that a right relationship with God involves faith that the whole way that we have a relationship with God is through our faith. We're trusting that Jesus Christ died for our sins. We're not putting our faith back in the old sacrificial system or in that our good outweighs our bad. It all comes down to us simply trusting in God and our trust in God moves us to action, that we are going to live according to our relationship with God. We're gonna live in accordance to the loving relationship, the faith relationship, and the awe and reverence that we have in our relationship with God. And because of that, we will live out our life in such a way that's a response to that. And then he goes into chapter 11, he says, and here's 
some examples of people who've done just that. Some people who have put their relationship with God into action. It has caused them to do and to act accordingly based on what they say they believe and who they say that they love and now the awe and reverence that they have for God. So this is faith in action. So he starts off and he says, now, uh, faith is being sure of what we've hoped for. We always hoped that there was life after this life. Uh, that there was some life after death, and we now have seen Jesus Christ risen from the dead, so we now have a surety about what we always hoped for. And so here's some people that lived this out long before they ever had any certainty with it. And so he goes in to list out all these what we would call heroes of the faith. Uh, now before I go any further, I want to make a clear distinction. When we're talking about heroes, we're not talking about superheroes. So often when you mention the word hero, our mind immediately jumps over to the DC or the Marvel Universe, whichever one you like better, it doesn't matter, and we, we automatically go over there and we're thinking we're talking about superheroes, and I know intuitively that I am not a superhero, and so I almost sort of think that it's kind of awkward for you to even say that I should attempt to be or strive to be heroic. I mean, after all, you're either a superhero or you're not, and we clearly are not. But if you think about the role of, of a hero, there's the role of hero in a lot of other movies besides superhero movies. As a matter of fact, that's really more what we're talking about. You think about somebody like Katniss. I think last service I said Candace. Anyways, uh, <laughs> you think about Katniss. She was sort of a reluctant hero. She didn't want to go compete in Hunger Games, but she wanted to protect her sister, and so she was sort of thrust into the moment. Bilbo didn't set out to try to save the world, but when Gandalf tells him the power of the ring and what must be done with it, he sort of reluctantly goes into it and does what has to be done. The, uh, and what you see is in most movies and stories, heroes are very flawed individuals. They reluctantly sort of accept the opportunity that is before them. They don't really want to go a lot of times, and they've got a lot of flaws, and they make a lot of mistakes along the way. You'll find the same is true in the Bible with all of the heroes in the Bible. Many of them are reluctant sort of followers. Moses looks at God and he's like, send somebody else. Gideon looks at God and he's like, not me, I'm the last person you should be choosing right now. Over and over and over again, you'll find that they're very flawed. Uh, they're very sinful. They make many, many mistakes. As a matter of fact, you want to feel better about yourself and your chances of being a hero before God? Read about the people he lists as heroes. And you'll go through this list and you go, well, I don't know if I was that bad. I don't know if I can be that good, but I know I'm not that bad, right? So it's very comforting a lot of times to read through and you see the mistakes that these people made, which is very comforting to know that someone who is a hero is not a superhero. They're a flawed, sinful individual, just like you, just like me, but they put their faith in action. They took their relationship with God and said, God, I will follow you wherever you lead me to go. I will do whatever it is you ask me to do. I will fight the good fight. I will finish the course. Wherever you want me to go, whatever you want me to do, I will do it regardless of what my personal cost is. And that's ultimately decisions they make. Now, along the way, do they make mistakes? Yes, but the key is they persevere. And I like that way that... Um, the author of, of the message translation pulls it out. He says, we're not quitters who lose out. Heroes don't quit. That's the one thing all heroes have in common. They just don't quit. It's not that there's anything unique or special about them. Sometimes the one who succeeds is just simply the person who doesn't quit. They just refuse to quit, and they just keep on going. And that's one of the stories about things with uh, the Rocky movies, right? It's not that Rocky was that great of a boxer. He just never quit. He just kept coming back and kept coming back and kept coming back and kept coming back. And sometimes that's the key to the greatest success in life is just not quitting. And so that's what you see throughout uh, chapter 11 with these, what we call the hall of faith or the heroic hall of faith of uh, Bible characters. Uh, you start off with probably one of the people who you kind of say, how is he in this list? Abel. Abel's the very first guy listed in the list. You think most people kind of skip over Abel. I mean, after all, he's 
doesn't even get a full chapter in the Old Testament. He's sort of gone before he's even here because his brother murders him. So why is he the first person in here? Well, because I would argue, say he's the very first person who shows faith in God. Um, I don't know if Adam ever really had faith in God because for me, the opposite of faith is not doubt. The opposite of faith is certainty, right? Like when you know something, you don't have to have faith in something, right? Because you know it. What's the point of having faith if you know the outcome? Like I've said before, whenever I'm watching my team play on delay, like like I've recorded the game and I'm watching it, even though I'm watching it the next day or maybe later that night because I've been so faithfully ministering to you all (laughs) that I forgot when that, especially when there's weddings going on on a Saturday in the fall, why do you people do that to me? And so I'll do the wedding, but I'll have taped the Florida State game and I want to watch it later. I'm still watching with faith, hoping that we come back, right? until one of you all texts me. <laughs> hey, sure was great to see them pull it out. Now, do I watch with any faith after that? No, I'm watching with certainty. So the opposite of faith is certainty, which is why I don't think Adam had faith in God. I think he had a certainty about God because it says that he was created by God. He walked with God in the cool of the day. Now, yes, he sinned and he messed up, but he had a certainty about God. It was his son Abel who had the first opportunity to actually have faith in God. And so it says there of Cain and Abel that they, they were both farmers and one of them grew crops and one of them uh, raised animals. And what it says about Abel is that he gave the best and the first of what he had to God. It was a faith statement to say, God, I'm trusting you with my best. I'm trusting you with my first. And you know what happens if you give away your first or your best? You don't have them anymore. I know that's really insightful, but isn't that not a moment of trust? Because you're giving your first and your best. You may not ever get another animal born to that animal, right? Because you're giving your first up. You may not get another carrot come up out of the ground because you gave your first up. And so when you give God your first or give him your best, it is a faith statement saying, God, I'm trusting that you're going to give me more after this. I'm trusting that if I give this to you, you'll bless me in the future. Cain, though, is like, eh, I'm not going to give God my first or best. I'll just, I'll give him some stuff. You know, I'll, I'll kind of appease God a little bit, but I'm not really going to trust God with what I'm giving him. And so there you see the very first act of faith we see in Scripture is Abel trusted God with everything he had and said, God, I'm going to trust that you'll bless everything in my life from this point forward, whereas Cain sort of tries to play it safe. And that was the difference in those two to begin off with. And so you see him as the very first uh, person listed in the uh, list of faith. Uh, After that, the next sort of main name you'll see, you'll see Noah comes up and then you get down to Abraham. And with Abraham, uh, God calls him to leave where he's at, to leave the comfort and everything he's got set up and go to some place that he doesn't even know. God just says, just follow me and I'll tell you where to go. He's like, well, where? We'll just go and then I'll tell you. And so they're along the way, and they get there, and he says, what are we going to do once we get there? Well, I'll tell you when we get there. And they get there, and God says, well, you're going to end up having a child, and you're, I'm going to make a great nation out of you, and I'm going to bless you, and you're going to be the father of many nations. And he gets there, and he's like, you know, God, we're getting a little old. I mean, we started this journey when we were in our 70s, and now we're in our 80s. We're almost up to 100 now. Nothing's happened. And it was by faith that he continued to trust that God would eventually do what it is that he said he would do. Now, let me just pause for a minute. One of the other problems we have when we read these stories in the Bible is sometimes what does us in is the fact that we know how these stories end. And sometimes when you know how the stories end, you forget the sort of fear and uncertainty that it was like living them in real time, right? Like, it's no fun to live a life of faith. I'm just going to tell you right now. Now, it's exhilarating and it's amazing on the back end, but it's not fun in the moment, right? Because like when you don't know what the outcome is going to be, it is a scary thing. Like we look back on it and say, well, you know, we all know Abraham's father, Abraham, you know, father Abraham, many sons, many sons of father Abraham. I'm one of them. So are you. So let's just praise the Lord. Anybody grow up singing that when they were a kid? Yeah. So father Abraham, we all know he's father Abraham. Only thing is, you know, who doesn't know he's father Abraham? 
Abraham, when he's living his life and he's getting into his 80s, 90s, 100s, he doesn't know he's Father Abraham. Uh, Moses, when he leads the people out of Egypt and he gets onto the verge of the Red Sea and he's got the sea in front of him and Pharaoh's army's coming behind him, he doesn't know he's going to be walking through. He doesn't know God's going to be parting seas. He has no idea that's about to happen. It is a terrifying experience to get to the place where you are forced to trust God. Now, what do each of these people do heroically? They continue to trust God even when the circumstances and all the odds are all against them. They continue to trust God and say, well, if I perish, I perish. I'm just going to follow after God regardless. Even if God doesn't save us, I'm still going to trust in him no matter what. You see Shadrach, Meshach, or Abednego, they say that great line later on in the story. Anyways, so all of these people continue to trust God even though their outcome is uncertain. All they know is, I know there's a God. I have a relationship with him, and I'll spend eternity with him, and this life is about nothing more than my relationship with him, so it doesn't matter what happens in this life, I'm trusting in him. And so he goes through a list of all these people who that's how they live their life. The next one he shows up in there is, is Moses. And with Moses, he talks about how, actually, I just want to read this section because it's really good. Um, it says this, um, verse 25. It says, Moses chose to be mistreated along with the people of God rather than to enjoy the fleeting pleasures of sin. He regarded disgrace for the sake of Christ as of greater value than the treasures of Egypt because he was looking forward to his reward. By faith, he left Egypt, uh, not fearing the king's anger, and he persevered because he saw him who was invisible. A lot in there. In other words, Moses uh, had the option. I could either, if, if you know, if you've ever seen the cartoon, Prince of Egypt. So Moses, as a little baby, if you don't know the story, uh, the Pharaoh uh, wanted to get rid of the uh, mass population of Egypt, uh, Hebrew people there in Egypt, and so he decided he was going to kill all the children that they were born, a way to thin out the population, and so Moses' mother puts him in a basket and sends him down the river. One of Pharaoh's daughters sees the basket, pulls the baby out of the river, knowing it's one of the Hebrew children. She raises the child as her own son in Pharaoh's house, so he grows up literally as a prince of Egypt. Now, as a prince of Egypt, you would have all the spoils that comes with that, but you'd also be sort of pushed to adopting the gods of Egypt and the worship of the sun god and all the other gods that the Egyptians would worship, and you would also have the opportunity to indulge in all of the pleasures that uh, Pharaoh and his royal court would enjoy. And so Moses ends up recognizing that he ultimately is a Hebrew by birth, and so he sides with God and his people over against the opportunity he has to just keep his mouth shut and continue to enjoy the gravy train that's coming his way. Instead, he steps out and he says, no, I'm going to side with God's people. And so as a result, he ends up killing an Egyptian. He ends up running out into the wilderness and spends the next 40 years of his life out in the desert uh, doing nothing but being a shepherd to his father-in-law's sheep. I mean, think about that role reversal. You go from being you're a prince in the greatest uh, power uh, on earth to not even having anything of your own but tending sheep for your wife's dad kind of the reversal. He says, but he did this because he would rather follow after where God wanted him to be than continue on with the pleasures of sin. And then ultimately, it talks about how everything he does, and it says, he persevered because he saw him who was invisible. In other words, he persevered because of his faith. Think of everything that Moses had to persevere through. He goes back to Egypt. He says to Pharaoh, let my people go. Ten times, Pharaoh says, I'll let him go, and then he backtracks on that. The 10 times he goes through that whole thing, he ultimately leaves out of Egypt. So we already talked about, he gets to the edge of the Red Sea. He's got Pharaoh's army coming down on him. And what does he do? Does he turn his back on God and say, okay, God, we're done with this. We're heading back. No. He says, God, you brought me this far. Show me where you want me to go next. And so he prays up to God and the seas part and they walk across the Red Sea. But does the adversity end there? No. It's only beginning almost. 
Uh, he's got another 40 years ahead of him because the people that he's with don't want to go into the promised land, and so they wander around the wilderness for the next 40 years. And we see that what Moses does ultimately is he perseveres. And one of the greatest elements of the perseverance of Moses is that he gets right at the end of his life, and he never gets to go into the promised land. But he persevered in his faith, and he persevered even past death. And ultimately what happens, if you go to the New Testament, you'll see that Moses actually does get to go into the promised land as he comes to encourage Jesus Christ before he dies on the cross at the Mount of Transfiguration. You'll see there Moses comes down and he steps foot in the promised land for the first time some 2,000 years after his death. And then if you go into Revelation, you'll probably see Moses once again, I think over in Revelation chapter 11, but I don't want to get into Revelation because I just don't usually go there. But he goes back to the promised land one more time. And what do I, what do I want to get across there? the perseverance that he had in his relationship with God, God ultimately rewards on the back end, and sometimes it doesn't happen until after this life. We're going to see that theme come up again and again and again. Uh, After Moses, you'll read about several others, and then you get down to one that's sort of another oddball on the list, and you read this and you go, huh? She's on the list? I don't know how I, I don't know why she's even, was she really a hero? I don't know, I guess. If you say she is, I'm going to trust that she is. And it says, it goes through all these lists. I mean, think about it. You're going like, Abel, you know, the one who offers the first offering. You got Enoch who walks with God until God, you know, he walked on the earth no more. He just goes for a walk with God and never comes home. He just kind of walks right off with God. You got Noah who builds the ark right there. You know, that's, you know the most faithful man on all the earth. And you got Abraham and uh, Isaac and Jacob and Joseph. And you got Moses. And then you got Joshua who walks around the city and the walls come falling down. And then it says, and Rahab the prostitute. Come again? <laughs> Huh? What, what now? Um, yeah. Now, I think it's an understatement to say she's not your classic superhero of faith, right? But she's still listed here in the Hall of Faith. Um, you know, I like, uh, oh gosh, what was the name of that movie? Mystery Men. Um, we're not the favorites. We're not the superheroes. We're the other guys. That's kind of the group that, that Rahab, I think, would consider herself in. We're, we're, we're the other guys. We're, we're not part of the, that whole, you know, Abraham and all of that stuff, but, but she's still listed in here. Um, so why is she listed in here, and why would he bring up her past? I mean, come on. Like, it doesn't say Abraham, the, you know, philandering husband who uh, had a child with his wife. He doesn't say Moses, the murderer, because Moses did that too. Like, like, why bring this up? I mean, really, do you got to take her past and keep on throwing it back out there? Is this not a label she can somehow someday walk away And I think the reason why it's brought up is because the very reason why she's in this and what makes her so amazing is the fact of her past. If you don't know her story, she was a resident in the city of Jericho. And when Moses leads people up on the edge of the promised land, Joshua then uh, takes up the mantle of the leadership and they're going to come into the promised land. Jericho sits right in the middle of Israel. So if you look at Israel north to south, it is right in the middle just over uh, the Jordan River. So it's right there, the very first thing you're going to hit. And I think their idea was is they would militarily speaking, if you enter the country from the middle, you sort of break off north and south, you conquer the middle, and now you've separated out. That way you don't have everybody coming against you, but you're able to separate it out. It's also the most strongest, powerful city uh, in the central region, and so you take out Jericho, and you're in good shape to take out the entire country. And so Jericho is the very first obstacle they face. Problem, though, with Jericho, it was extremely well fortified because there was a major highway going north and south right there along the Jordan River, as long as an east-west passageway, which still exists to this day, um, there's an east-west passageway into the country of Jordan right there through Jericho. And so Jericho is a very fortified city. It's got walls that are extremely thick. And back in that day, that was what you considered military power was, very thick walls that you couldn't breach. Well, everybody in the city is putting their, uh, their confidence and their faith in the walls. 
However, Rahab, she looks to some spies who come into the city and she hides them and she says, my faith isn't in these walls. My faith is in your God. I've heard what he did to bring you all out of Egypt through the Red Sea. And I have every confidence that if he wants this city, he's going to take this city regardless of how thick these walls are. And so the only faith and confidence I have is in your God, not in these walls. And so she protects the spies while they're there in the city. And they say back to her, well, because of the kindness you've showed us and the faith you've put in our God, uh, when we come to take this city, we will spare you, and here's the key, and your household. In other words, anybody who is in your house will be saved. Now, it doesn't, it's not the word for family, it's your household. Everybody who is in your house will be saved uh, when we come to take this city. And then as you read through, through, through the book of Joshua, you'll kind of know this peculiar battle strategy. God says, okay, instead of just going to take the city, I want you guys to march around the city uh, you know, multiple times for multiple days. And you think, why? Why on earth are they doing that? That's kind of the most ridiculous thing ever. They're singing songs of praise as they march around the city. Why would they do that? Here's my contention. Because that gave Rahab multiple days to say to everybody that she knew, hey guys, that army's coming in here. Their God is more powerful than our walls, and they're coming in. And if you want to be saved, come into my house. And so Rahab ends up becoming sort of the savior of, or the opportunity to be the savior of the city of Jericho. And so when the walls do come down, Rahab and everybody who's in her house are saved. And so, why is this so important? Well, because if she played the, the, the victim, she would simply say, well, what can I do? Based on my past choices and my past history, there's nothing God could ever use me for, nothing I could ever do, so we're just going to be a victim, and so we're just going to sit here and take it, and, and God's going to take this city, and I guess I'll go down with it. She doesn't do that. She takes a heroic moment where she says, regardless of the decisions I've made in my past, the decision I'm making right now is to put my trust in your God. And so Rahab is this amazing example of somebody who, despite her past, puts her trust in God. And what does God do? Not only does he save her, but he uses her as the vehicle of salvation for everybody in that city. Not only that, uh, you'll find that her name actually shows up one time in Scripture where she doesn't get this label, the prostitute. There's one time, only one, time, only one place I can find where her, that, that label doesn't attach to her. And it's over in the book of Matthew. Matthew mentions her name in Matthew chapter 1, uh, verse 5. It says, And Salmon, uh, who was the father of Boaz, whose mother was Ruth. So Rahab goes on to marry this Jewish guy named Salmon. They have a child named Boaz. Boaz is the father of Obed. Obed is the father of Jesse. And Jesse was the father of King David. So here's this woman who was a prostitute, she ultimately puts her faith in God, becomes a savior of the city of Jericho, is then marries this guy named Salmon and becomes a great-great-grandmother to the great King David. But why is Matthew mentioning her? Because not only is she the great-great-grandmother to King David, she's also one of the great-great-great-great-grandmothers of none other than Jesus Christ himself. And so why is she in here in this list of the Hall of Faith? Um, well, because if God can take a prostitute from a godless nation and use her to become the grandmother of a king and the great-great-great-great-grandmother of the savior of this world, why is it that you think that your past is keeping you from living a heroic life? And so you see, anybody and everybody can be heroically used by God. It's not a matter of what you've done. It's not a matter of where you've been. It's not a matter of the labels that have been attached to you. It's about your relationship with God and are you willing to act based on nothing else other than your relationship with God. And then he goes on to tell a whole bunch of other stories and gives a bunch of other summaries of people. And then he gets to the next chapter, and he kind of turns the focus back on us. And he says, uh, chapter 12 begins with this. He says, uh, therefore, since we are, are surrounded by such a great cloud of witnesses, let us. In other words, 
with all of these examples of all these heroic people, with all of these falls and all, all of these faults, all of these failures, all of these sinful backgrounds, all of these people who, don't, who did amazing, miraculous things through God's power, who fought off the sin in their life, overcame the past in their life, overcome all the obstacles, and you know about them if you go back in the Old Testament and read about them, God uses all of them in, all of them in heroic way. So because we have all of these examples, he turns attention back on us and he says, now let's, let's look at you for a moment. Now he starts off in, at the end of chapter 10 and say, hey, Let's not be quitters. Let's persevere through this. Here's an example of a bunch of other people who didn't quit when they could have easily quit, but they persevered and God used them in amazing ways to do amazing things. I want you to also continue to persevere in your relationship with God too. And so he says, here's the thing. Every hero has a battle to fight. Every hero will have a battle to fight. And there's two that he brings up in here. Uh, one is the sin in your life and the other is the uh, obstacles or the uh, um, adversities that you're going to face in your life. We've been saying all along, and Jesus says this promise, in this life you will have trouble. But behold, I've overcome the world. God's hope is that you, would over, that you would heroically overcome the troubles you face in this life as you move into a relationship with him, as you walk in a relationship with him in this life. And so what are the uh, two major categories of, of, of struggles that you'll have? One of them is your sin. So he says, therefore, Throw off everything that hinders and the sin that so easily entangles. Let us run with perseverance the race marked out for us, fixing our eyes on Jesus, the pioneer and the perfecter of our faith, who for the joy set before him endured the cross, scorning its shame and sat down at the right hand of God the Father. Consider him who, who endured such opposition from sinners that you will not grow weary and lose heart. In your struggle against sin, you have not yet resisted to the point of shedding your blood. All right, so two questions that comes up out of this. Number one is, what does sin have to do with our faith? And the second one is, why is it that our faith can't just seem to get rid of our sin? Why is it that there's a struggle of sin to begin with, and why is it we can't just pray and have all the temptation taken? Have you ever just prayed that and said, God, take away this temptation from me? And then wondered on the back end, why do I still have this temptation in my life? Um, I would say it this way. Although we all struggle with just about every kind of sin you can imagine, every one of us has what I would call the besetting sin of our souls, right? We all have that one thing that keep, we keep coming back to over and over again that's always a struggle. And just think to yourself, pause for a moment, what would your life be like if you never had that temptation ever again? Wouldn't that just solve about 90% of your problems in life, Right? For some people, it's money. For some people, it's sex. For some people, it's a substance, whatever it may be. If you could just take away that one thing, it'd almost be an easy walk after that, wouldn't it? I mean, sure, there'd be some little things to refine, but it'd probably be an easy walk after that. There's a couple things with this. Number one, Paul says, if God did that, I would probably be the most arrogant, self-righteous person to ever walk the face of the earth, and that's why God doesn't do it for me. You read through 2 Corinthians chapter 11 and 12, and you sort of picture that's what God's saying to him, is that the reason why I haven't taken away uh, your sin is because if you, think about it, if you never struggled with sin, but other people did, you don't think you'd get a little self-righteous and arrogant after a while? Yeah, pause for a minute. But why does God leave that there? Well, if this life is about nothing more than having a loving relationship with God, that I will live by faith, that I will trust him by faith, um, and I will live my life and have an awe and reverence for him, can you at least understand why it is that God would allow there to be a competing love in your life? Because one of the ways I show love, I love for God the most is by saying, God, this thing that I desperately want to do, I won't do out of a love for you. That's what struggle against sin is, is it not? This is something I desperately want to do, 
but God, I am not going to do it for the sole reason that I have a loving relationship with you. And so because of my loving relationship with you, I will fight against this for the rest of my life. And even if this temptation never leaves me, I will fight it for the rest of my life simply because of my loving relationship with you. And in doing that, it shows yourself and everybody else, you must really love God if you're going to walk away from that. And you see, if it was just a minor temptation, would that really be that big of a deal? That's why some people get up here and arrogantly preach against sins that they don't struggle with. They're like, well, I've never, I've never struggled with alcohol a day in my life. And you have a big old fat preacher up there, like, oh, I've never struggled with alcohol. It's like, well, you never said no to a biscuit, but you know, you... <laughs> right? Let's not talk about the gluttony issue. I just want to focus on alcohol that I don't have a problem with. And that's what a lot of pastors do. And that's why there are certain sins that the church has preached against so heavily over the years. It's because, well, I don't struggle with that, so I can preach heavily against it. Right? Well, let's start getting you know, to the serious point. What about the stuff you do struggle with? The very fact that you are willing to fight that temptation out of your love for God says something about your relationship with God, does it not? And then it brings up the other thing. Then he goes on, he says, and endure hardship as discipline, for God is treating you as children. For what children are not disciplined by their father? If you're not disciplined, and everybody undergoes discipline, uh, then are you really even true sons at all? And then he goes on to talk about the discipline and everything. Um, the next question comes up is, is you know, if we have a relationship with God, why does God still leave hardship in our life? And what role does hardship play in our faith relationship with God? And I've shared this many of times before, and simply that Without hardship, you don't really know the genuineness or the effectiveness or the reality of your relationship. Uh, for analogy, um, don't you, folks of you in here, in here or in the Navy, do you guys like go out and test your equipment? Do you guys go out and test your boats and your submarines and your planes? And, and usually they call these sea trials and stuff like that. And do, do, do you not also get tested with your own abilities? Do, do, do they sometimes push you in your training to the edge of what you can possibly endure? Is that part of what you all do? Why? why? Why would that happen? Why would the Navy be so mean and so cruel as to put you through those kind of things? I've been wondering that myself. That's why I'm thinking about getting out. No. Um, <laughs> is it not so you can trust your equipment, that you can trust your own body, you can trust the people that you're serving alongside, that you can trust uh, the ship or the submarine or the airplane that you're in? I mean, do you really want to be handed a parachute and say, this thing's kind of experimental, we think it'll work? No, no, get me back something that you, you've thrown like a, a, like a you know, lead weight outside of the airplane and that thing works a few times. I want to, I want to use that, that parachute. Uh, we think the submarine can go down this deep. We never tried it before, but you know, let's give it a shot and see how this baby holds. Uh, no, come back to me when you know, right? Without the hardship, you don't really know. It's easy to have faith in the good times. It's easy to say, I believe in God. But you don't really know whether or not you have a relationship with God, or anybody else for that matter, until you go through the hardship. And so, endure the hardship as though it was God disciplining you so that you might learn uh, to have a deeper and growing relationship with God. Now, is the reason for the hardship simply that it's a lesson or a test? No, I'm not gonna say that. But can you learn from every hardship you go to? Most definitely. You look at Job's life. Was all of that to teach Job a lesson? No, that has nothing to do with why, it was, why, why Job was going through that. However, did Job not learn a great lesson about faith and his relationship God through it? Yes, he did. And so, by faith, you heroically fight your sin and you endure the hardship, 
knowing that God is using that to perfect your faith, to make you more and more like his son, Jesus Christ. That's the message you'll see throughout the New Testament. So bottom line, every one of us is called to live a heroic life. Regardless of your past, whether it's like Rahab, regardless of what he's calling you to or what he's put you through, regardless of what sin is in your life, God is calling you to live a heroic life where you'll fight your sin and endure the hardship and grow in your relationship with him. Would you want to close our time in prayer? Father, forgive us for looking at the struggles of sin that we have and thinking that we're simply a victim and there's no way we could possibly ever fight against it. Just assuming that it's going to win in the end. Because your word says very clearly that our ultimate victory over the sin will come when you give us a glorified body and we break out of this. So Father, may we fight this sin in our life every day until you ultimately come back to redeem us. And Father, whatever hardship is in our path, may we know that it is only for the testing of our faith that we might persevere. Father, that we may know that we know that we know that we have a relationship with you. A relationship of love, a relationship of faith, and a relationship of reverence. Father, may we know also, Lord, that sometimes the most heroic thing we can do is to put our past behind us like Rahab did. and step into the future that you've called us to. And in Jesus' name we pray, amen.